Hi there and welcome to Sporting Lives with Jonathan Doidge. This is episode 5, part 2, the second half with Brian Dean, former England, Sheffield United, Leeds United and, and many more as we're about to find out in this second half of his career. Before we jump back in though, just to remind you, you can follow me on Twitter on at Sporting Lives 1 or indeed at Jonathan Doidge or you can get in touch as well on YouTube and subscribe on Sporting Lives with Jonathan Doidge and it goes uh, the same goes for Podbean and iTunes Sporting Lives with Jonathan Doidge also a Facebook page on at Sporting Lives 1 do subscribe and like and follow us for all future episodes uh, loads more to come football wise if it's your football that you love but we're also spreading across uh, a number of different sports so let's jump back in then. It's episode two of Brian Dean. So pressing on, uh, Brian, because we've got a few more clubs to get through here. Um, because of that uh, that list, I've got them all here. So let's go. We, we went back to Sheffield United. We mentioned that. Benfica, yep. Middlesbrough, Leicester, West Ham, back to Leeds, Sunderland, Perth, and then those last couple of games at Sheffield United. I don't, I don't want to disrespect your career by sure. going through that so quickly. Um, but... But can we talk about Benfica? Because you know what a what a club uh, with the the history that that place has got, and anybody of our generation certainly would think Benfica. And there's one word, Eusebio. Eusebio yeah, I mean, I I had this when I uh, left Leeds. I had an opportunity to go to play in Holland for Feyenoord, um, and but there was just something that wasn't right, and you know. It's to do with agents, you know, and I've got my own opinion of how some of them can operate. But, um, yeah, it just didn't seem right. And then um, Sheffield United came back in for me. And the, the thing was, I was I didn't really think that I wanted to go and play it back in a division below. But then I spoke to, um, I spoke to them about what they had planned Um they were serious about wanting to get promoted. They were. It was a time when clubs were fo- floated on the stock exchange. Um, and then Paul Merson went and joined Middlesbrough. So I kind of thought, well, you know what, maybe it's not such a bad thing. But if you've got some, such an established player already like Paul Merson who's going to go there. Um, and so I went, you know, and, and we had a fantastic team. Um, by Christmas... Um, I, you know, we were kind of nicely tucked behind the um, the leaders. I think it was Middlesbrough who were the leaders, but we had a game in hand and we were point, point behind them or something. And the team was, you know, very strong. And then it all kind of unravelled with the um, the owners of Sheffield United. And you know, I've got my own opinions on what happened, and you'll have to wait for the book. You know, oh. I, you know, the book isn't going to come for a while because I'm still in the middle of some chapters perhaps that I want to put in and I don't want to but that in my own terms was a real weird situation because we we were we would have got promoted with that squad but um suddenly I got a um first of all my contract at the time what had happened was I'd I'd been offered a uh, contract and I had a good contract and it was only for one year. And I think that was the reason why um, the club wanted to get rid of me because they could see that if I was available on a free. Um, but 
I had such a good relationship with the club that I said, listen, if it looks like we're going up, I will, I will go. Um, sorry, no, I wouldn't go. I'd sign an, I'd sign an extension because I wanted to stay at the club. But the owners had different ideas and um, they presented me with the opportunity to go, to go to Portugal and they made it quite clear that, you know, they had different plans. So it's very famous in Sheffield that they sold myself and Jan Agafiotov all the goals in the same season, you know, and it was like, wow, you know. Mm. Um, head scratching. Head scratching, you know. So um, I didn't even know that Jan was going. So that's how bad it was, you know. They kind of sold us both. It was like it was a fire sale, and the the thing is, they still got to the to the cup semi final. I mean, sorry, to the playoff final. I mean, you had players in the squad. I mean, if I go through the squad at the time, it was Paul McGrath, Carl Tyler, um, who was at the back. Paul McGrath, Carl Tyler, Dean Oldsworth, Dave Oldsworth, not Dean. Um, the fullbacks Vas Babokis, who was a Greek international, very good player. Um, Wayne Quinn, who went on to play for Newcastle. And he had Don Hutchinson in the midfield. Um, Dane Whitehouse uh, and one other. Can't remember who that was off the top of my head. It might be Matt Patterson and then myself and Jan up front. Gareth Taylor who came in as well, and it was a very very strong team, you know. So uh, it was weird when that happened, but. Anyway, I, I went to Portugal. Um, I'd always kind of fancied going abroad. Uh, and um, this was... I don't think I was realising what I was letting myself in for with the size of the club. I'd heard about Benfica, but, you know, I, I had no idea. And then I, I went and I we agreed terms in the president's office. And then we went to the club and I went to this stadium. It was like a coliseum, you know, and it's like... Oh, hundred and ten thousand people in this stadium. I'm like, oh. if you have a bad first game, you're in trouble in front of that many people. Is this one of these places where um, you know Brian Dean goes to the toilet, sort of gets reported? It's that um, focus. Yeah. It, it, look, I mean, Benfica at the time had nine million supporters worldwide, and um, I remember we used to go to games and we'd have more fans than the home team. At games, yeah. So there was a serious level of pressure um, for, to play for Benfica. And, um, you know, we had some fantastic players. You know, Michel Proudhon was a goalkeeper. Um, we had uh, Carlos Gamara, who played for Paraguay in the yeah. World Cup. Um, Joao Pinto. Mm -hmm. Nuno Gomez was my partner up front. Carol Poborski, who had um, just gone to, who had just, you know, had left Manchester United. Um, Paulo Madeira was a centre back. Um, Amaral, who was a Brazilian international. So, a serious, serious team of players, you know. Um, and it was just the biggest team. It was like the transition club for all the big, um, as it is today, for all the big South American players. Um, so it was, you know, and, and the thing was with those games was you could be, typically every game you had at home, the teams would set off quite deep, you know, and they'd be hard to break down. They'd let you have the, the ball in, in your own half because they didn't want to stretch and, and you could play between them. And uh, for me, it was, um, it, it was a different type of football, you know, there was all the possession and, 
you know, you found yourself quite easy to mark at times because, you know, the defenders just thought, right, you know, they put man-to-man on you wherever you went. And um, I think we got better at that in terms of rotation and so on. But it was it was very, very hard to break down. But we had a centre-forward called Nuno Gomez, who I played up front with, and, you know, Nuno's probably his second in Portugal's history, or third, um... And and he was um, he was a great centre forward to play with because he would usually make the breakthrough and then teams would have to open up. You know we had a good we had a good partnership myself and and Nuno and then you know it allowed me to do what I did as well. One thing that um, that occurs to me that we've not explored with any of these teams that you've played in, but but really does ring true with some uh, club like Benfica with that reputation with those great players that you were playing alongside is is sort of. Within the squad, is there an ego system? Is there a hierarchy? Um, are players trying to get one up on each other? Is there a lot of internal competition, or is it quite a supportive feel to a club like that? No, it was quite supportive because the the thing was playing for Benfica is um, that the problem we had was it was us, and if we didn't perform, the white handkerchiefs would come out after twenty five minutes. So we knew we had to get results from you know from the resources that we had um so it was a, it was a fantastic fantastic and fascinating experience for me you know and, and and obviously scoring in that stadium becoming a fan favorite all of those kind of things was you know a real highlight for me and uh, imagine um quite a sort of lonely experience in some ways as well when the games and training's not on and you've got to go back to the um, the four walls of your hotel room or whatever you were staying? Yeah, it was really tough living in Estoril and Kashgai, you know, really tough. I mean, <laughs> 22 degrees in sort of like January, February. I mean, how did I cope, eh? Yeah. Um, by the way, we've got a, um, a question for you from... Um, sure. From Colleen, uh, Colleen Lintzel, hope I've pronounced that right, um, who asks uh, how it felt to be the first goal scorer in the Premier League. Yeah, I mean, I, again, uh, you know, I answer this all the time, but the, the truth is at the time I was just happy to uh, score um, on the first day because, you know, back in those days the, the centre-forwards were the ones who were supposed to score the goals and uh, if you scored then it meant... If I, I was like a one in three player all the way through my career, so goal every three games. So that meant that I had two or three games to get another goal. If you get what I mean. So if you start, um, if you start going four and five games without a goal, that's when, as a centre forward, your confidence starts to go. Nobody can tell me otherwise because I've been there, I've seen it, I scored over two hundred goals, and I know the psyche that you have to have. So if you're not scoring goals, it does start affecting your confidence. So for me at the time, I was just relieved to start off getting a goal. Um, and obviously because it was against Manchester United, it was fantastic. I ended up scoring two that day. I got a penalty in the second half. Uh, we won 2-1. So I was I was on cloud nine. You know, it was a um, great, great feeling you know, and, and it was the beginning of a new era in terms of, you know, uh, football and how it was going to be broadcast. So, uh, it, it you know, for me it was, yeah, it was 
it didn't really actually kind of hit home the significance and I'll always say this until perhaps I finished playing and and you know people start saying oh well yeah you scored you know it's a quiz question and this and I'm like wow yeah that's me and it's a good bit of a gift and a curse in some respects because because I'm always going to be um, remembered for that it's you know I have to protect my legacy as much as I can uh, for myself and for my kids and so on so uh, you know it's it's something that's going to carry me in it and I feel like a bit of an ambassador really <laughs> you can give uh, Colleen a quick wave um, on, the, on the camera behind she'll watch you <laughs> she will be eventually um, so as I say I don't want to disrespect your career but you, you have gone through uh, all your clubs in other podcasts I know that and that's out there so don't want to cover too much in the way of old ground out there's just a few other things i'd like to ask you before we before we finish uh, sure. your 50th party by the way it looked an absolutely if listen folks if you get a chance uh, to, to search for brian on youtube it'll bring up all the goals the premier league's first goal all the rest of it uh, quite a few interviews but there also is brian dean's 50th party with some absolutely brilliant funky music on there Give it a watch. Oh, Two or three minutes of your life. Oh, man. I mean, look, that was... It was, it was re- one of those special, special um, moments for me because my... Um, it was... it was There was the tribute game to Sil Regis, so West Brom had played Southampton. And um, my partner had said, oh, we, we have a wedding reception to go to. And I was like... Usually I'm like, jeez. Oh, Really, <laughs> you know, so and she kept reminding me of this place that we had to go, and um, I was like, okay, so we went went down to watch the so the the game West Brom against Southampton, and I thought, right, I got to get back, and I was with Rod Rod Wallace and Chris Fairclough, and I says, right, guys, listen, I I need to go because uh, I got to get back for this wedding reception. We'll catch up soon, guys. Love you, love you like cooked food, as we used to say. And um, anyway, so I'm going home, and then I, I decide right, I'm going straight to this venue. So get to the um, engine shed in Weatherby, and uh, I'm like, oh, that's Danny Bailey's car. What's that doing here? Anyway, I go in there, and um, my, my, my missus comes, and she says, "Oh, Brian, you know, I've come to get you." So I'm like, "What's going on?" I get in there, and there's silence. I look around and there's like all these people in Afros and I'm like, who are these people? <laughs> but it looks fantastic. It, it was you, brilliant. You it did. Was... Um, I've watched the, the been a fan of sort of soul music. I've yeah. watched Soul Train, all the stuff on YouTube on there, and uh, the Soul Train dancing line, and it looked like that. Yeah, that thing. Going oh out. man, it was it was great. We had the old Soul Train, like you say, the Soul Train line, and you know you're dancing to all the Brothers Johnson, Storm, Earth, Wind and Fire, Tom Brown, Funkin' for Jamaica. I mean, and, and this this is my era for music. You know, I'm a little bit of an oldie in that I used to love all the. Um, the 70s and 80s disco, I still love it. It's what makes, takes me to my happy place, you know, and it reminds me a lot of what we've talked about, really, which was growing up and um, much like yourself, really, you know, growing up and happy times where, you know, people were happy. People didn't have as much as they have now, but people were happier. 
But I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to do a separate, completely separate podcast on Brian's taste in music, and we'll go through uh, we'll go through all that chapter and verse because I'm right there with him. Earth, Wind, and Fire. <laughs> seen him a few wow. times live. Great, great fantastic fun. stuff. Um, okay, a couple of other questions about you, the man, if you like, you as a player. Uh, yeah. What what got to you as a player, um, whether that be on the field or off the field? Is there anything that really sort of ever got under your skin? And was and if so, was that just as a footballer, or is it you as a person? You know, is it what get got to me? Um, no, I mean, I always used to like to prepare properly, and you know. I, you know, whether you're playing Spurs, Man United, um, Arsenal, whoever, you always used to know who you were, you know, everybody knows they're all household names. So I always used to try and prepare accordingly. And, you know, some opponents were more difficult than others. Um, some I felt very comfortable with, you know. But one thing I didn't like was when people started to foul me because I used to, I mean, I, you know, there was one kid ended up being a teammate at one club, but... I remember we played in one game and um, I remember this ball coming into me and I felt somebody whack me on my on my calves and I was like, and I, I, t- I says, I said, listen, I said, uh, what's all that about? I says, well, I just the game. I said, listen, that's where you want to go. Let's 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 go. And um, yeah, half time substitute. <laughs> New new de- new defender playing against me, so I, I never I never used to like being overly physical, but I I could take care of myself, and I think that came off the back of I never I remember when I was at Leeds and um, we played against Newcastle one time, and um, it was a lot different in the in those days, and 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 Howard came into the changing rooms, and I remember we played Newcastle and. I'd had a poor game. We played Newcastle up there and Steve Howie had played really well against me and, and Howard came in and he said, you know, as as he used to do, you go around every player and then he says, you, he says, he gets an England cap off that. And I thought, no one's doing that again. No one is going to make their reputation on me again. You know, simple. I don't care who you are. You're going to know that you've been in the game you're up against yeah were you quite a self-contained player um you know did you need we we for example a player who uh, in that classic um fashion needed an arm around his shoulder from the manager or we no. just get on with the job <laughs> listen you know you never got an arm around your shoulder in them days you know you were either to quote what um brian clough once said to a player uh, he just bought this player and he said to this he went son have you bought a house in the Nottingham area? And the, and the player said, no. He says, well, I wouldn't bother. And that was after one game. So that's the era that we grew up in. And it was like, you know, you had to be resilient. And no, listen, you you know, but that resilience is built up. So, I, I of course, you know, if you're not scoring goals, and Dave Bassett was very good at it, he would turn around and say, listen, Brian, you know, You'll always be able to score goals. You're just not getting the rubber to green. Keep getting into the same areas. Um, it'll work out for you. So that was what I would call a, an arm round the shoulder. Um, you know, it's you can shout at somebody for so long and it just loses its effect. And I've had managers who did that as well. Um, it's about, you know, management, man management is one of the most important things, you know. Getting your players onto the pitch and getting them to feel like they have nothing on their shoulders and that the manager believes in them 
is the best thing you can do. And yeah, I might have only had two years in management, but that's what that's what I did. That's that's how I used the experiences that I had to to get the best out of the players that I had. Seventy games in charge at um, at Sarpsborg. Yeah. Uh, it sounded like quite a nice little lifestyle up there in the southeast of of Norway as well. Um, and, 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 and there were successes. <laughs> yeah. Well. Well. I mean, I, I got the job. They got. They just got promoted to the top division. Um, I got the job. Um, I, I'd been told, look, you know, this is how we want to play. Um, we've got the smallest budget in the league, and um, you know, we want to be more professional. And I think what I, my brief basically was to bring my experiences and try and establish the club in the division. Uh, and I'm I'm proud to say that since I was there for those two years, we 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 finished. We managed to stay up in the first year um, and in the second year we finished uh, eighth and got to the semi-final of the cup and lost to, um, was it Mulder in the in the semi-final? You know, so we didn't do bad in those two years but, you know, I, I still get people saying that it was a great time for the club and they saw the transition from a kind of amateur club to now where they played in the Europa Cup two three years ago so yeah it's yeah wonderful time wonderful time there which uh, you know which prompts the next question really as I said earlier on um, you certainly uh, come over as a, a bright lad you've got all your chairs at home in terms of your knowledge of football and all that experience you've got on the field you've 70 games in charge in Norway but as far as I'm aware not a sniff in this country, of hmm. having charge of a football team, look, people can make out what they want. I mean, for me, you know, I, I would have just liked a chance to get in the room and speak to people. You know, I've played, I've, I've, I'm a player who has played abroad for one of the biggest clubs in Europe. I have experiences from that. I was, uh, you know, I've played for some of the biggest teams. I played for Leeds when we finished, you know, in the top five in the Premier League for two years. Um, Sheffield United, played for England, played for West Ham, Middlesbrough, Sunderland, Leicester, went down, come back up. <clears throat> and I've got experiences, or rather I had experiences from all those um, situations, played for different managers, played under George Graham, learned a lot from him, played under Alan Pardew, learned a lot from him, Howard, um, Dave Bassett, Terry Venables, um, Graham Souness. That's what I was bringing in. That's what I took to Sarpsborg. You know, I took all of those experiences of playing under those players into that club and managed that club in a way that I knew that I would have the advantages because nobody had those experiences. Uh, and I knew, for example, when we had, we, we went for a period in the first year I was there where we lost six in a row. And um, but I never I never failed believing in what we're doing. And over there, what happens is before you get off the pitch, there's a camera in your face and a microphone. And you know, and I, if they if they could have seen or the players could have seen that I was gone, they'd have all they'd have all folded as well, or they'd have said no, get him out. And I never never lost faith in my team. And Funnily enough, it, it was like the time when I was at Sheffield United and we had four points at Christmas and I knew that 
we just needed a win. We just needed something to turn us around because the players won't want to go there again. And that's exactly what happened. You know, and we finished the season very strongly. Just, uh, well, well it, yeah. it, it, it never happened. It defies it never, logic, doesn't it, really? Well, it, it never happened. Look, there, there are people out there who will turn around and say, you know, and, and say, well, I've had it. And you know what? I'm sick of, I'm, I, I've sat in every chair. You're right. I've sat in every chair out there and I can say what I want because I've been there, you know. And, and if I say that I can't get an interview or whatever, I can't get an interview. I'm not going to lie. But I would say this, you know, I might have got an interview, but there might have been better people for the job. It doesn't bother me, you know. You have to be able to prepare for that situation. And if you can't even prepare for that situation, then it's not fair. It's not a fair race. And um, the thing for me now is I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm past wanting to go into management. I think it's also prudent to mention that um, management is very tough, you know, Managers take a lot of stick. Um, everybody's talking about it. Everybody can do better. It ain't that easy, you know, because there were times where I was managing a club with a capacity of 6,000 in the top division in um, in Norway when I wasn't going to sleep till 2, 3 in the morning because I was wondering about decisions I was going to have to make as a manager, how I was going to have to drop him and explain to him why he's not in the team and so on, what tactics we were going to have. We were going to play a 6-3-3-6-1. We were going to play 4-3-3-4-2-3-1. Why? Why am I playing him there? And I'm answerable to my sports board. You know, so you have to... You're selling yourself all the time. Um, so... Yes, I do know what I'm talking about, but I'm quite happy that, you know, I don't have to think too much. But one of the things I came back with, and I, and I mentioned this because when I came back, I, I said, look, I didn't get on with the sporting director. Um, and, and that was just a clash of personalities. But when I came back, I respect the fact that you, this is a post that you can't really ignore um, because... There needs to be a, a, some a real strong communication thread between the owners and the coaches, and, and that's got to be a supportive role. You know, unfortunately for me, I saw a lot of what is bad about the role because I was forever having to manage above uh, and 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 somebody on the side and somebody who wanted to bring his his mates in and so on. So I was getting all kinds of things thrown at me. Um, you know, but. You, you you get through it, you know, and, and I'd like to say in life, I'm I'm better for that experience. So just one more footballing thing, really, and that is uh, Kosovo. Um, mm. Ferizaj? Ferizaj. So, yeah, that's How interesting. How did that come about? Ferizaj. Um, the, the truth um, is that in, in terms of being over in Kosovo, I've got a friend who I've known for seven, eight years now, very close friend of mine now, Francesco, and... Um, you know, he's been for years saying to me, Brian, you need to come over to my country, come over. And, you know, I'm like, I'm not sure about that, you know, because... And he's like, listen, oh, we, we love you, you know, they, we, we love the English, you know, you guys, we have Tony Blair Street and Bill Clinton this. And I'm like, f f look how far... And, and then I got to find out a little bit about the, the, the background and, you know, what had happened and, you know, the, the, 
the fight between Serbia and and Kosovo and and the the intervention of the U of the of NATO and all of these kind of things and I went over there and you know I found it very interesting um, and I also found that I didn't find I've not in in all my time over there I've not I've not had any form of racism none whatsoever um, I don't know if it's you know I can't say. If I went to one of the other countries surrounding it, whether it'd be the same, but I do know in Kosovo, it's you know, you know the the population, the average age of the population is about it's under thirty, um, for reasons you can yep. probably work out for yourself. Um, but the people are so friendly; they're eager to, um, you know, to accelerate their economic development. Um, they want, like everybody else. Um, and, and the reason why I went over there was because of some opportunities away from football. But while I was there, I actually met the um, people from the FA, including Fadil Vokri, who unfortunately passed away. But the, the main stadium is named after him now. Um, so I have some friends from that point of view. And I got involved with the club, but, you know, it, it's more of a role um, in that it's for the strategic development of the club. But, you know like anything um people want to do things their own way so you know at the moment it's i'm not sure how that one's going to end but um you know there, there are some interesting ideas it's a it's a place where you can um pick up you know very good youngsters there's a little bit of undevelopment so there's a lot of potential potential in the younger players if you look at it being part of the former Yugoslavia, which was the Brazil of Europe, um, when I was growing up, that's where all the best and more skillful players came from. Look at Croatia; that's the kind of levels. If you can, if you can put the kind of infrastructure in place, where you're putting good, um, not only facilities but also good training methods, um, then you could potentially, you know. Sky's the limit. You've seen what what happened in the Euros as well. Am I right in saying it's a fifty percent share? Um, it is fifty one, but at, like I said, at the moment, you know, we, you know, we, we, you know, I'm not sure if that's going to stay the same. Um, you know, there are things happening, and you know, in in fairness, I'm I'm based over here, you know, um, and my, my my partners are. But like I said, the reason why we, I went over there in the first place wasn't to get involved in football, but I think what happened was very quickly people recognised me and understood who I was and 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 asked me to get involved in a in a couple of projects over there, which which has been you know interesting. So reading between lines, it sounds as though the the football club future may change. My words, they're not yours. Um, but let's finish on the future. What what is what do you see as Brian Dean's future? Um, well, like I said, you know, I'm. I'm at a point now where in my life there are some projects that interest me in and around football. Um, but I certainly don't have the kind of energy that I did 10 years ago. Uh, you know, I want to enjoy whatever I'm doing. I want to actually, I prefer to be somebody who, you know, people want the answers from based on my experiences. So that's one of the things I'm involved in. Um, the most important thing for me, actually, is the fact that we have a generation of footballers in my my age group who have not really been properly looked after. When when the um, Premier League money came in, 
there was a lot of exposure to a lot of unscrupulous people. And yes... Um, Is that the A word? Um, agents? Well, agents, advisors, and Hangers I've seen on. a lot of, I've seen a lot of, you know, people who, you know, ha- should have been looked after better and, and have been exposed to these kinds of people. And what we need in football is more financial education for the young players, um, a real understanding and, and the transparency of their career, not being exposed to people who are going to take what they need from the, each relationship. And you could, you know, I throw it out there, you know, I'm saying to people, and if any, any, any kids are, are, are listening out there, believe me, you know, there, there are some people who are, who are in that game who understand the journey. Um, a lot of them are ex-players. Some of them are very good. Um, some of them understand what it's like for a player when, he's, when he goes over the line. I would say stick with those kinds of people. Don't go for the people who are coming out of it a lot of the time, you know, and they've been, you know, I don't know, they could be selling anything because, believe me, that is what you are. You're, you're an object to a lot of people like that. Um, so, so I believe that what we should be looking at with these players, and I think we've been let down by certain areas, but I think what we should be looking at is, you know, financial education for, for, for players so that they can learn by the time they finish playing, for them, playing football, they understand and they learn about... For example, what's the best way to buy a car? Do I play cash? Do I go HP? Do I um, take a lease? Whatever, you know, basic understanding. Don't put that in other people's hands. Try and have your um, try and have your 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 family around you if if they're supportive. Look, every situation's different, you know. Um, But I can only speak from my experiences. There's times where I wish I'd have listened more to those people right close to me instead of thinking about other people. Um, and like I said, I've seen some pretty horrific cases of how people have um, been treated and, and then at the end of the career that the phone stops ringing. You know, if you've got a, if you've got a boy who's straight out of the um, academies and um, all of a sudden, you know, he, he can't get a club, his phone stops ringing... These are the people you've got to be wary of, you know, because they're obviously looking at you as a meal ticket. And I, it's it's never too early to think about becoming self-efficient, self-sufficient, sorry, and self-aware of what this career means. Understand money, understand what it means for you, for your family, you know, for those around you, you know, keep a tight knit unit of people around you. And if people want to come in, you know, look, I'll, I'll be honest with you. <clears throat> I'm happy to, to speak to any parent about the the um, effects of, you know, not having the right advice. I'm not going to turn around here and say that I can give better advice than anybody else. I'm just saying, look, if I had my time again, you know, there's a way of managing those situations and making sure that, you know, your family, you know, my brother once said to me, he said, listen, Brian, if you ever fall, who's going to be there to pick you up? Not all of these people. It's going to be me. It's going to be us. And that's what kids need to remember that when you're playing, you're not immortal. You know, at some point you will be on your backside and who's going to be around you? 
That's what you've got to remember. You know, it's not because you can buy a, a Bell staff jacket or a Rolex watch now or have a nice car outside. You know, remember, you know, manage yourself properly and you can have whatever you want for as long as you want. Um, words of wisdom from the sage, Brian Dean, after a 20-year career. Um, he, he might have lost a, a hair follicle or two since the days when we played a few few games together, but he certainly lost his marbles. There's no question about that. Um, listen, Brian Dean, it's been a really enjoyable journey from Chapel Town to Sheffield United, Benfica, uh, and via Norway as well. I thank you very, very much indeed for your time. Um, a real pleasure for me to talk to you. Pleasure. Yeah, thanks again to Brian Dean. Fabulous to hear all about uh, his career across that variety of clubs that he played for and all those footballing experiences. I thank him for his time and I also thank uh, the guys at ICS, Ian Holding and Julian Barnes, for the part they've played in helping me put this podcast together. Plenty more sporting lives to come. Do please follow me on Twitter at Jonathan Doidge or at Sporting Lives One. You can also subscribe on both YouTube and Podbeans on Sporting Lives with Jonathan Doidge or indeed head to our Facebook page and give us a like and all the latest uh, news and clips are on there as well and that is at Sporting Lives 1. Thanks to you for listening once again. I hope you'll be back with us for the next episode of Sporting Lives.